Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel over-churched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Hi, good morning, UVC. Uh, My name is Trevor Bates. At this time, if you brought a Bible with you or if you have it on your phone, you can take it out. I'll be reading scripture, and it will also be projected on the screen behind me. Um, This is uh, Exodus 20, 1 through 4, and uh, 8 through 11. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. This is the word of the God of God for the people of God. Good morning, church. My name is Emily McGinley, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I have the great um, privilege and honor of serving as the um, newly minted executive pastor for Urban Village Church. Um, uh, and also in ministry alongside many of the folks that you've already seen up here um, uh, on stage, but many people that you don't uh, often see up front, but help us do what we do and be who we are. So I am just grateful to be able to um, serve alongside so many gifted and dedicated faithful folks, um, but also to, to be here with you today. Um, as we prepare our hearts uh, for what it is that God would have to say us to us today, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for gathering us on this day to um, create just a little bit of space uh, to lean in a little more closely to what it is that your spirit might be whispering into our ears, uh, the ways that the spirit might be trying to um, discomfort us for your work and your transformative um, activity in our lives, um, to call us outside of ourselves, to serve others um, for bringing about um, a world that reflects your intentions um, for all of creation. So help to clear away the clutter that is in our minds to be present here in this space and to hear what it is that you would have to say to us today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
In our passage for today, uh, we're dropping in on a group of folks uh, who have been through some stuff, uh, if you've read Exodus. Um, After eight plagues and a parted sea, they are freshly liberated from generations of indentured servitude and slavery. They've been wandering around the wilderness for three months at this point and have moved past the immediate danger and urgency of of escape. Their hearts have slowed down. They've caught their breath. We're safe now. What next? Until this point, they've had, uh, they've, all they've had time to think about really is just getting free. But now that that's behind them, they're faced with kind of a whole new set of questions that they've never maybe even had the luxury of asking. Uh, they're shifting from surviving this moment to thinking long-term, which also means that they've kind of come to this place where their identity needs to rest on more than their trauma. There is something new that they need to do and be apart from what they have suffered under. If our our oppression doesn't define us anymore, then what will? And what next? Well, many folks um, at UBC uh, have returned from the holidays last week and maybe even this week, um, and and they've maybe been experiences that have been fraught for one reason or another, whether it's been marked by living more fully into a part of ourselves that we've embraced and are ready to assert, perhaps around gender identity or sexual orientation, uh, or maybe a change in relationship status or vocational path. For others of us, it may have been shaped by choosing to define and live new roles for ourselves. I will no longer play this role in our family dynamics, right? Or choosing to extract ourselves from toxic systems altogether. Now, the step itself is courageous, but what about life after the choice, right? What does it look like to build something after having spent so much of your time just fighting for air to breathe and room to grow? But of course, building something new is often easier said than done. We have ingrained ways of being and doing that shape our worldview and our habits. And as we try to break free from these, it doesn't take long before we begin to see how we've internalized the lessons and norms that shaped those things in the first place. Whether it is heteronormativity or patriarchy or white supremacy, narratives, lenses, and ways of understanding the world, we have been shaped by it all whether we like it or not. And usually we don't really realize it until we've decided to choose something different. We don't realize the ways that maybe we have discounted our opinions or ignored our needs or disqualified ourselves beforehand because we've so absorbed the narrow imaginations and definitions that those frameworks teach. Women don't catch the ways we diminish ourselves and each other. Men are hardly aware of the limited expressions of emotion they allow themselves. People of color don't realize the ways that they self-police and police each other to conform to expectations of whiteness. And similarly, queer folks find themselves working to overcome or redefine heteronormative definitions of self-expression. This is not an indictment on anyone, although maybe some folks are feeling a little seen at this moment. (laughs) It's just that these are broad brushstrokes, right? And the point that I'm trying to make is that each of us has some stuff that we need to work through. Even when we have done the courageous work of embracing ourselves, our fullest selves, we continue to have work to do, to live beyond the bounds of our varying traumas and oppressions and the bounds that have been set up internally within us because of that. And this is where the Israelites find themselves in our passage for today. For the first time in a very, very long time, they have the option for self-determination, a choice in who they will be and how they will live. They have a choice in what defines them and how they will live together. But the intergenerational trauma that they carry, the internal work that needs to be continued is real, and God knows this. 
There are deep patterns of dysfunction, malformation, and brokenness that have formed them. How do you even begin when all you have known is hundreds of years of systemic oppression? This, then, is where our passage for today comes in. And now, while most, uh, most often they're called the Ten Commandments, I'm, sure that, 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 I'm not sure that that fully describes what's going on. So I'm going to pause right here. Um, with all of the thou shalts, uh, these certainly sound like commandments, but I think it's a bit more true to the spirit of what's going on to call them something more like the Ten Covenants or Ten Commitments. Because what is happening here is closer to what we might see in a marriage ceremony than a dictator laying down the law. God is saying, look, I am in. I am here for you, and I am committed to you. I will care for you and protect you, and I will see you through. But if this is going to work, here's what I need from you. It's got to be me. I've got to be your God, no one else. And so don't put other things before me. And don't, take, don't make my name cheap, right? Which is another way of saying, don't take my name in vain. And, and on the whole, um, these three, I think, feel pretty obvious, right, when we're talking about a commitment ceremony. But then there's this next thing on the list that feels sort of different, right? So God's like, um, love me, put me first, don't throw my name around, also sleep. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other, right? So we're in this second week of our sermon series, exploring the rhythms of life as we have been created and called to live it. And throughout this month, we're talking about the ways that prayer, connection, rest, and giving help us lead not just balanced lives, but richer, more joy-filled and meaningful lives. We heard that a little bit in what Myron shared earlier in his testimony. And today, of course, we're talking about rest and the commandment or commitment that God calls us to pursue it. Why? Why would God place Sabbath rest so far up the list? It's number four, right? Ahead of honoring your parents, not killing or cheating. It's way before don't steal, lie, or envy. Like how could sleep be listed before murder, right? So what's going on here? As it turns out, rest is more than a luxury. It's baked into our DNA, and it's a vital part of God's vision of wholeness of life for all. Now, I could talk about how if you have healthy sleep habits, if you practice good sleep habits, you'll spend nearly a third of your life sleeping, actually. And I could explain the ways that your brain actually becomes more active in your sleep than when you're awake, and how sleep helps you make better decisions, be more creative, and able to regulate your emotional wellness. I could talk about how sleep is deeply tied to mental health and wellness, and I could point out that even God rested after a week of enormous creative effort. But today I want to talk about the ways that rest is an act of resistance and a commitment to justice, which may not always sound uh, obvious to us. Because if you've ever read the first 19 chapters of Exodus, then you'll know that the oppression the Israelites escaped was not just ethno-religious, but that it was deeply tied to economics and production. The leadership of the day relentlessly demanded more for less, and the reasons weren't just about revenue and nation building. It was also designed to suppress their spirituality. If you could show the next slide. Earlier in Exodus, the scripture says, Pharaoh commanded the people's slave masters and supervisors, don't supply the people with straw. They need to make bricks like you did before. Let them go out and gather straw for themselves, but still make sure that they produce the same number of bricks as they made before. Don't reduce the number, even though they're doing more work. They are weak and lazy, and that's why they cry, let's go and offer sacrifices to our God. Make their work so hard that it's all they can do, and they can't focus on these empty lies. 
make them work so hard that it's all they can do and they can't focus on anything else. How many of us have felt at times like we have to hustle so hard we have no time for anything else? Hardly any space, headspace to bring, to think. You're not alone. Most of us have been so consumed by our broader culture of constant grind that we don't really know any different. If you don't believe me, consider the fact that nearly half of all Americans uh, who have vacation days don't take them off, and 20% of Americans leave more than five days of vacation unspent every year. Some people even feel like vacation causes them more stress because of all the work that they have to do to prepare or catch up at the end, not to mention that their bosses frown on it and they're afraid that it might weaken their career prospects. Add to this the creep of technology in the hours between work. I won't ask for a show of hands how many folks uh, check their work email in bed before turning the lights out at night. How does an anxiety-inducing email from a supervisor or a client right before bed help anyone get a better night's sleep? I have been there. Don't do it. <laughs> but so then, how do we begin to change our habits? Well, last week I was uh, listening to an episode of the podcast Hidden Brain, and it was all about how to build better habits, actually. And one of the main ways to build a habit is by removing what psychologist Wendy Wood calls friction. Now, friction is what makes a new habit just a little bit more difficult. So, for example, if you want to break a bad habit, you want to create friction to make it harder, right? So, uh, if you, uh, let's say, maybe, like, you want to reduce this checking your phone in bed thing, right? So, maybe you would plug your phone into an outlet overnight in a different room, so it's not right next to your bed, right? Or if you want to create a habit of perhaps like exercising first thing in the morning, Dr. Wood says, you might sleep with your workout clothes right by your bed, so that way it's just a little harder to talk yourself um, out of getting up, right? Now, technology developers have capitalized on these findings. Uber puts a lot of money into training and evaluating drivers and their cars, but they were finding that many drivers would quit after uh, or before they would get to their first 10 rides. And so Uber was losing money on all this training that they were pouring into, right? So what they decided to do essentially was to reduce friction. And you probably actually heard this without really kind of computing it. When you're in an Uber or a Lyft, toward the end of your ride, um, the phone app then pings and assigns them a new rider um, for the next ride, just before you know, you're about to wrap up. So then they don't have, the driver doesn't have time to think and decide, you know, like, this is getting difficult. I don't want to do this. I'm going home, right? They're, before they have a chance to think, they're off on the next ride. And so it moves them forward through the process to the point where they start to feel more comfortable um, with what they're doing, and they can develop some habitual patterns of dealing with customers and kind of get them over that hump, right? Make them work so hard that it's all they can do, and they can't focus on anything else. Now, it's not the same, but it's not all that different, right? If you keep folks running from one thing to the next, if you keep them distracted, keep them anxious, and limiting their focus to what's right in front of them, this is how you keep people from thinking more deeply and living more intentionally. We are trained not to rest. And even culturally, to some extent, rest has become almost morally suspect. You can take a little rest, right? But if you take too much, you risk appearing lazy, unambitious, or even worse, a drain on society. 
We have been so formed by a culture of grind and the gospel of hypercapitalism, which says there is never enough, will never be full, we must win at every cost. There is always something just chasing right behind us. All of this anxiety, our God rhythms, our God-given rhythms of rest and work, then have become completely fractured. Maybe the reason why the call to rest was at the top of God's list of commitments from the people is because they too had so given themselves over to this kind of culture that it needed to be at the top of the list. That if they didn't change this, they couldn't change anything else. What would it take for you to rest faithfully? Not just to get a good night's sleep, although let's make sure we've got the basics covered, right? Not just a good night's sleep, but deep rest. What would you have to let go in order to do this? Maybe it means uncoupling your sense of self-worth from how productive you are, a kind of idol, right? Or slowing down, which means you might not come in first. Even more, what might it require in order for you to fulfill the other half of that Sabbath covenant, if you could project um, that sli- the third slide, um, to let others rest, Maybe it means decreasing those Amazon purchases so that workers aren't rushing so hard that they end up breaking their bodies to fulfill their orders. Maybe it means choosing not to shop on holidays so that retail workers aren't working in times that they should be resting. So take a moment to reflect, if you could show the next slide, what what discipline do you need to take on in order to resist the values of constant hustle? to faithfully follow and advocate for God's commandment of rest for everyone. What discipline do you need to take on in order to fulfill God's commandment of rest for everyone, for yourself and for others? Rest is a way of telling the truth about who we are, created beings, and who God is, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. And so how will you begin to tell the truth about who you are and who God is through your work and your rest? So now maybe you can begin to see how something as simple as rest could be an act of justice and resistance, even discipleship for those Israelites back then and maybe even us today. Perhaps the reason why rest comes before all the other commandments is because good rest actually prevents other bad decisions. I mean, how many of us might be able to honor our parents a little bit more if we'd just taken a nap before picking up the phone to call them, right? How many murders could have been prevented if there was a decent night's sleep on everyone's part? Maybe not all of them, but pretty good percentage, I would guess. Even Jesus called on his followers to come and find their rest in him. So let's take him up on his offer. Let's make room for a rhythm of rest along all the other rhythms of our lives, not as an extracurricular but as an essential part of what it means to follow God and accept Jesus' invitation to a new way, a transformative way of doing life. So take more naps. Schedule it in. It just might transform your faith and maybe even the world around you. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you invite us, that you, in fact, have a benevolent commandment of sorts to call us to a deeper rest. And that rest is something that helps us to reflect your glory with greater depth and fullness. Help us not to be afraid of it. Help us not to devalue it. Help us to encourage one another toward it. For the sake of a world that so deeply needs to know rest and restoration.
so that it can encounter your transformation. We pray this with gratitude and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.